All right, we're going to go ahead and see if we can get started as other people will still be coming. We're just going to go ahead and see if we can get going. We're online now. Uh, we want to say good evening to everybody that's out there. Uh, we were taking a moment uh, to um, bless and pray with Sister Kareen. Uh, she was here with us tonight, and we just wanted to take this opportunity to make sure that uh, we extended our love to her uh, and her family. And so we do appreciate um, them and be reminded, uh, we did send out, not to the whole church, but we sent it out to the HELPS team, but also her husband's viewing is going to be on Saturday from um, 8 to 10 at DeSalle Funeral Home on um, Eddie Robinson. Uh, I want to keep saying South 13, but it's, I think Eddie Robinson uh, Boulevard. So, and then uh, we'll be going to the funeral um, the grave site immediately after that, and we'll just do a graveside service there. So it'll just be a viewing. Uh, if you get a chance, maybe come by, uh, see the rest of the family, and um, that'll be between 8 and 10. All right, so we're going to go ahead tonight, and we are beginning a new book uh, we're going to do tonight. Uh, we're going to begin the first epistle of John, and we're going to use uh, this book uh, to kind of set off what we've been talking about in terms of what at least I think uh, is going on even in our church, and that is, you know, kind of a, 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 a new season of life for us uh, as we move, I think, looking more. Um, I, I mentioned this Sunday as I was talking in the message. I said that um, sometime when you're going through things, um, the message was entitled Acquainted with Grief. I said, you know, that that's not the time that some of the message that I had preached that I would give to anybody, you know, because... Um, it really wasn't, that's what they're not, they're not that, they're not for that. Uh, I said that many of those messages really are intended when the time to really build yourself up is before things happen and before things are going on. And I, I say that especially with Sister Kareen and her family. I, I think about how I got a call from her, uh, uh, one of her daughters, uh, Kezia, the youngest I think she is, and, and Kezia's, um, even through tears, her request was that I would pray for them and for her. And, you know, for somebody 20 years old who's just lost their father, you know, to, to, to be able to call the pastor and say, you know, can you pray, um, just to me demonstrates that God was still ever present, you know, in their thoughts, even though they would not understand what had gone on or anything. But I think the uh, time, um, hey, Kevin, the time um, had... I think, built up in them and those types of messages built up in them an understanding of God's goodness and that who does it, like Sister Corrine said, Satan comes and kills, steals, and destroys. That's his purpose. And we don't understand everything, but we know this about God. But during these times, then the, the message must shift. And, and, and it has to shift to either put your hand over your mouth or all you can do at that point is demonstrate the love of Christ toward people during those moments um, and, and just be there as the family of God and be able to give them the type of uh, support and messages that they need to hear. So I think that the season that I think we're entering into as a church even is this idea of understanding and focusing on Jesus himself and then what we see in Christ and how he demonstrated his life while he was here. So John, who has uh, been referred to in the book, is 
the beloved disciple, also uh, was one who leaned on Jesus' breast at uh, the Last Supper and who Jesus confided in, who would betray him. And we understand then that they appear to have had a relationship that went beyond the relationship that other, the other disciples had. So John, in the first epistle of John, spends time dealing with all of these aspects of Christ. And it's, what's interesting is he kind of begins by not even in this book, even having an introduction of any kind to anyone. You know, Paul, in most of his letters, he wrote to different churches. It'd be Paul to the church of the Galatians, or Paul to the Philippians, or Paul to the Colossians, or the Corinthians, whoever he's writing to, the Romans. Whereas John basically just starts off, you know, talking about Jesus and getting right to the point. Um, and then he, he breaks it down for us in a way that helps us to understand our faith and helps us to understand why we can say to other people with assurity that if we believe in Christ and if we've come to the place where this is what we accept, that why we can't, there is no other option for us and there is no other truth that we can accept and that people really need to understand why Christ, why Jesus is and why the reason for such adamancy about Christ. So what we're going to do, we'll read chapter 1, and then we'll do our usual process and just go line by line and just break it down each piece to look at uh, what we see. So we're going to begin with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10, and then we'll come back and we'll just kind of go each verse, uh, verse by verse. So let's begin uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins and he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right, so let, let's begin with verse 1 and let's kind of break this down and like we said, we'll go through it. And what John then, like we said, will do for us is to help us have a, a, a much better rounding, if you will, as it relates to our faith and why we are required, really, if you will, as believers, to understand the position that there is no other way to God. Um, people have lots of ways and lots of things they say, but the reality is that uh, this is God's declaration to us. So we see John opening the chapter. We said, you see, again, with no introduction, no hello to anybody, basically getting directly into what he wants to discuss in his epistle. So he says, that which was from the beginning. So we see then that he is trying to make it clear that Jesus Christ existed 
before the foundation of the world, before the beginning was, Jesus was there. Now, this is where when people will get into the discussion and they'll be saying to us many times like, well, Jesus never said he was God and Christians making God and all of that. <clears throat> but failure to understand reading all of the Gospels through all of the books of the Bible, we come to this understanding about Christ that the, the Bible says in Philippians. Um, he made himself of no reputation. He took up on the form of a servant. Many times when Jesus, the Bible says he humbled himself, he never declared certain things anyway. People would say things to him, and he would, like, respond back. They, one guy came up to him and said, good master. He says, why are you calling me good? There's only one good, save God. That's God. So why are you calling me good? Well, that to me was almost like a paradoxical question. You know, the reality is he was God in the flesh, the son of God, but he wasn't saying that other than at moments where when he was asked once, are you the blessed one? And he declared, yes. But other than that, Jesus didn't say much about these things. In one place, um, the Jews wanted to stone him because they said by making himself or making certain statements, he said, by saying he's the son of God, he equated himself with God. So the Jews understood exactly what that meant. That's why they wanted to stone him. You basically are making yourself equal with God. In another place, Jesus said to a man, he said, your sins be forgiven you. And the Pharisees were on the side, and they were saying to within themselves, who is this man? Because he blasphemes. Only person who can forgive sins is God. And Jesus said, he recognized their thoughts and what was going on in their minds, and he says to them, let me ask you a question. What's easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he said, so that you know I have power on the earth to forgive sins, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And the guy got up and walked away. And so, once again, he demonstrated the fact that just like God could forgive sins, so could he forgive them. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously, you know, we're dealing with the Son of God, someone who's been given authority and power to forgive sin. So... We understand then that this then helps us to see what our, why our confession is that Christ is from the beginning and that he, in fact, is God. So he, then he goes on, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we, our hands have handled of the word of life. So he says, first of all, we heard him. So not only is, if anybody's been telling you that, you know, Christ is some type of ghost or some made-up phenomenon, no. Not only is he from the beginning, we, I, John, and several others, and many others, actually heard him physically with our own ears speak to us about things that are eternal and what they are. So this becomes our test, the testimony that we receive. He said, we saw it with our own eyes. We beheld him. We looked at him. And then he says, we handled, we looked upon him, and our hands handled him. So they touched Jesus. They, Jesus was in constant connection with them. Jesus laid hands on other people. This was a real physical manifestation of the Son of God, who was from the beginning he came in the flesh, 
There's no discussion or debate about whether or not the Messiah himself actually did come. Now, we said, and we've said this in the past, that for even most lawyers, if not all lawyers, what you see in the Bible is more than enough evidence to convict anybody of any crime. The testimonies that you have of the uh, apostles and others, et cetera, it's way more than enough testimony to throw somebody in jail for life, okay? Yet still, people are not convinced uh, by what they see, you know, and they go on to say all types of different things. But the, the biggest manifestation we say really many times is what you see happening, if you will, within the church itself and the people of God and how they react and how they do and what they do. And it's important then, we said, for us to recognize that he's referred to as the word of life. And so what does this really mean? You know, it's not just that we are talking about the Son of God, that we throw it around like we do. What we said is that one of the reasons I said that I believe that, like Sister Kareem being here tonight and some of the discussions we've had, when you know that life, Jesus said, if a man believes in me, he, he never dies. And although we may die here, we say, Jesus made a profound statement to say that. If a man knows me, he never dies. You know, what, what is he talking about? There's something in one place in Psalm 103, the Bible says that God's mercy is on the righteous from everlasting to everlasting. And, you know, there's no way that any person can go from everlasting to everlasting. But from the beginning, God's love is on folks. From the beginning of time, the Bible says that Christ, like you see here, was in the beginning, and the Bible talks about how if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. It says, behold, old things have passed away, all things become new. How does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us that God foreordained Christ. From the beginning of creation, Christ was there. Therefore, when you are in Christ, Christ who was in the beginning and Christ who is in the end. When you are in Christ, you are now all the way back to the beginning of time. Therefore, you're a new creation. You are all the way into the future that you may not see, but you're in Christ, and whatever that future is, you're already in it. You're in Christ in the present right now. Although you're here, you're still in Christ. This is why the Bible says, Look not on things on the earth, but things that are in heaven. Put your mind on the things in heaven. Mind heavenly things, not earthly things. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Because by doing that, we then are in Christ, and we don't have to have any fear about our life. In, in verse 2, he goes further. He says, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it. So... He's, his point then being that Jesus walked the planet and began doing things to help us see and understand how God sees the perfect man. The Son of God took on flesh and became the perfect man. 
Now, I said this a minute ago. I'll keep emphasizing it because I do think, like when Brother Chris preached that sermon, I said this a little while ago, about new seasons, I just think our season has changed. And I believe that, like I said, as we begin to, to, to need to focus more, I think, on now that side of Christ, that compassion, that understanding, that Christ that reaches out in the middle of the problem. I said, on the one hand, the sermons we had, and why I said that Sunday again, I said again, those sermons should have built you up. Those are the kind of sermons, you know, you're talking about faith muscle and faith this and that. Those build you up when everything's going great and your life's wonderful and your family's good and your kids are doing well and everything's just wonderful. But when it hits the fan and things change, now ain't the time to work on faith muscles. Now's not the time to uh, uh, apply any of that. Now's the time for the Christ that you've come to know to come out. Not only does he come out in yourself, as like I said, when Kezia called and she was crying, and yet instead of crying and saying, why would God do this, her, pray, her request was for prayer. You know, Pastor, pray for me right now. And that took me back so much, I just it did. But again, I said, the, now it's time that the compassion of Christ, and I, I, I was telling Sister Karina earlier this morning as I was doing some studying, and I put that word in from Genesis to Revelation and compassion. You see God saying it so often of himself from the beginning, and Christ all the way to the end, and then Peter and others saying, we ought to be people of compassion. I want to read something to you. I'm going to go to Peter. And this is in 1 Peter. And let me see if I can find it right quick. In 1 Peter, he says this. Let me see if I can find it. Here we go. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verse um, 7 and 8. And we won't care so much about the fact that he's talking to husbands, but it will it'll matter in a sense of Christ because the Bible talks about Christ being the husband and the bride being us. And so we see ourselves as bride of Christ. It says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be, all, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. In other words, here when he says, finally, be of one mind, now the Bible begins to take us into what we, got, we saw or, or beginning when we'll see in John with Christ. Because as he says, finally, husbands dwell with them according to knowledge and all, and giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. And the word weaker doesn't mean weaker like she's weak. The Bible, that word weaker, is really more like talking about the fine things you have in your life. Like when women buy china, many times they never use it. They put it on in a china cabinet because it's not for everyday use. You know, you don't want everybody roughing up your china. You usually bring out your family dollar plates or whatever else you done got. Or a few you get them wherever you get them, Target or Walmart, you know, or some store, but not, you know, $3,000 and $4,000 set of plates. 
that you got typically for your wedding. Those are set in the china cabinet. They may come out every now and then. Maybe it's Thanksgiving or some reason you might use them, but very seldom. This is what that word means when it says giving honor unto your wife as unto the weaker vessel. Not she's weak, but this is a delicate thing. And so he says, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that these two, you two together will inherit life. Because God says if you don't do that, you, your prayers can get hindered. You know, we're praying and trying to get to God with things, and he's like, mm -mm, I'm not having it. Because the one place that I need you to show your grace, you're not doing it. It's right here in your house. You know, I need you to do that. And if you can't, you can't demonstrate it on the ground, then what good is it? Yeah, what, what, what's the point of it? You know, we don't, we won't, don't want to be a self-sufficient church, you know, where everybody just kind of comes and we do what we do and we say God's helping us and then we go out and help ourselves with everything we do, um, not realizing that, like I said Sunday, there are lots of people in the world who got jobs and houses and cars and all that. No, none of them believe in God. I mean, you know, so the idea is, what makes us different? What separates us? And the Bible says it's the love of God, that people see our love one for another and our compassion for each other, and this is what separates us from the rest of the world and the Kiwanis Club and everybody else. And so we see then that he goes on and says in that next verse, put that verse back up there that we had, the, the one after that in Peter. I want you to see that one. Because this is what John saw. He says, finally, this is what Peter is saying. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. And that word compassion means mercy and, and, and to be pitiful toward and to be concerned about. And, and then he says, love is brethren. Be pitiful. That word pitiful don't mean be pitiful like walking around with you looking pitiful. You know, the difference between pity on another and self-pity self-pity is when I'm sitting around because it ain't going the way I want no more and all that versus being pitiful. He's saying there are people around you who it's not going well like it is for you. And although you're high on the mountain and everything's great and wonderful and faith's looking good and it's doing wonderful, remember in the body that there's always something that may not be going well for someone else. And he says we should be of one mind. In other words, I cannot ignore your trouble. I cannot ignore your situation. Now, if I don't know about it, yeah, I guess that, I understand that, but if I know about it, then I, I should be prayerful and be diligently praying about things. You know, I tell my wife many times there's certain things that may be going on, and I say, now, don't forget, you pray for me. And she's like, I am, I said, and I, sometimes I remind her, don't forget, now, I need you to be praying for me about this or that or the other. And so remind, because I need you to pray. You know, I don't want to just be praying for myself. You know, I need you to pray. So she's like, okay, I'll take care of that. So, so I think that as God continues to get us to understand that this is what makes us and sets us apart, and we'll see later in John, where we'll go back now, we'll see later in John, at, when we get to that section, he'll begin to say, you know, how can a man love God who he's never seen? You know, everybody talking about, I love God, I love God, I love God. But they've never seen God. He says, but they don't love their brethren who are right there. He says, how can the love of God be in us? You know, I mean, how can you love a God you've never seen? Um, but you can love, but you can't love the people that you're seeing when they're supposed to be birthed of God. These are supposed to be your brothers and sisters, you know. Uh, how can we be this way, he says. Now, he says then, 
for the life was manifested and we have seen it. All right, so now we've seen it, and I want to talk about this manifested because there, there are some people who just have this doctrine that it's not really, this is not correct, and we want to make sure we're correct on what we're doing. And they always talk about, you know, God was manifested and all this kind of stuff. And when they use that word, manifested in three persons and things like that, you got to be careful what you're saying because many times when people say that, they're talking, they have this idea, and, and at one time I kind of used it as an example. It's just a bad example, I think, even though you're trying to give an example, but sometimes it's just better leave it alone. When you talk about, like, water and ice and steam and all of that to try to give some comparison of how one thing can be three things. But the problem is that when you think of the one God, the one Godhead, the idea is that they are three distinct persons. They're not one person that became something else that then became something else, you know. So it's not like God, because they'll refer many times even, they'll say Jesus, and they'll say Jesus is God the Father. And although people may refer to Jesus that way, he's not the Father. The Father is the Father, and the Father was the Father from the beginning. He's always been the Father. And then there's the Son, and the Son is not created, although he took on flesh. That's what the Bible says. He took on flesh. He, he was with the Father in the beginning. Now, how and what that looks like, we don't know. What we know is... He was in the beginning. That's what John says, that which was from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He is separate from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, matter of fact, in one place, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the one sin that God will not forgive a person for, for doing it, once they do it. And sometimes people will say, well, I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I, 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 it means I'll never be saved. And I always tell people in my mind, anyway, I have no evidence of this scripturally, but it just seems to make sense to me. People who probably blaspheme the Holy Spirit don't care. They're probably not coming around saying, pray for me, I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I, you know, you don't blaspheme something you don't believe in normally. You wouldn't blaspheme God's Spirit if you actually thought His Spirit was alive, uh, I guess. I mean, but that's just me talking out of my head, but I, it's the only assurance you could give somebody who was a believer who thought they did that. Uh, there's nothing that says, except in the one place where we see it happen, was when, or Jesus made this statement, was when they were giving credit to him as the devil for casting out demons. And he said, you need to be careful because blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the only one that God won't forgive. He didn't even say that was it. He just said, basically, they need to be careful because they were basically attributing the works of God to the devil. And he was saying, you know, I need to be careful with that. So when we talk about manifestation, we, all we're saying is, I, I think I've mentioned this before, when I worked at GM, when they would build cars, they would have something called the manifest. So when you go in and order a car, that you say what you want in your car. You know, you want bucket seats or not or whatever you're putting in it. I don't want to tell my age. I was about to say you want a cassette player. Uh, but <laughs> we know they don't put those in cars anymore. Um, you know, whatever those little plug-in things they got going on. Uh, any of that stuff that you want in your car, 
and you're telling them the type of things you want. All that goes on this thing called the manifest. And the manifest is usually stays with the car as the car goes throughout the plant. And the car is built specially uh, for certain orders if you've made a special order. That's all that this basically means. It, it, it manifest means it is the, it, this is what you've seen. The Bible says in one place, the manifestation of the Spirit, and it's just talking about what you see when the Spirit is doing something. That's what we mean. So we're saying that the, the, the life that we're talking about was manifested, we saw it, he says, and now we bear witness. He said, and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So he says, now we are trying to get you to understand because John is going to make some more astonishing statements later in this book where he begins, which we'll get to later, where he begins to talk about if people don't listen to us. Now, I'm not talking about me personally, me. He was talking about himself and the apostles at that time. If people don't listen to us, this is how you know and we know they don't have God. Now, to make that bold of a statement, means that he obviously had enough confidence in what he was saying that he could say it. History, at least some like Josephus and others, some Jewish writers and others, have said that John was in prison on Patmos because they couldn't kill him. They said that he died of natural causes. They attempted on several different occasions to martyr John. They said one time they threw him in boiling oil to kill him, and they couldn't kill him. So basically what they did was they banished him to this island, which is where he was when he saw the revelation of Jesus because Jesus was the one who revealed himself to John and John the Revelator. It's the same one, the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, all by the same John. And so it appears then that John may have been the only disciple that was not martyred. Uh, but also, he seems to be recorded as the only disciple that followed Jesus completely to the cross as well and was there when his mother was there and Jesus gave his mother into John's care. And so there seems to be something special about their relationship. And as he talks, it becomes more obvious of what he's saying. So he says this eternal life was with the Father. And now what we want to do is make it clear. In verse 3, he says, that which we have seen, and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says, here we go. We're trying to make it clear. What we're telling you is what you need to know in order to make it into heaven. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I asked them the question, you know, so what is your relationship with Christ? And they were a little baffled it seemed, as to what I was talking about. And I said, well, you know, I'm just saying, I mean, I, how do you see Jesus? And, well, that didn't work. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this question. If you die today, do you think you would go to heaven? Well, that penetrated, that statement, they understood it. And they began to explain to me why they figured they would go to heaven. You know, well, this and that, and I do this, and I do that, and I do that. I said, so do you think that all those things are good enough to get you into heaven? Well, you know, I, I'm a pretty good guy, and I don't, you know, um, 
do anybody any wrong, and I try to do right, and da, 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 not all the things he was saying. And I'm like, okay, but answer my question. <laughs> do you think that's sufficient to get you into heaven? And the only answer the person could really say is, well, I hope so. I said, okay, now let me go back to my first question. So when I asked you what your relationship to Christ was or to Jesus, and you said you, you believe that and, and you understand, I said, obviously not, because that's not how you get into heaven. I said, you know, that doesn't work. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you did, how you do it, no matter how great you think you are. God has given us an explanation of how eternal life works. And we have to be clear on this and understand it, because if we don't, it ain't going to go well. This morning I was reading, it may come up Sunday, I don't know, we'll see. But as I was studying, I was reading about the guy who, when Jesus asked Peter, well, Peter asked Jesus, how many times can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And then Jesus began to tell this parable about a man who owed his master like 10,000 talents. And the time came, and the master, uh, Lord of the servants, said, go sell him, his wife, his children, and all his stuff, and pay what he owes. But it wasn't enough, and the man began to beg him and plead with him and said, please don't do this. I'll pay you back. So it says that the Lord of him had compassion. There with that word again. Had compassion on him and forgave him all his debt. But then he went out and found someone who owed him a hundred pence and began to basically shake him and said, pay me what you owe me and kind of cast him into the, or I'll cast you into the debtor's prison if you don't. His friends watching all this were all distraught and distressed, and they went back to the master, the Lord who had forgiven him of his debt, and told him what happened. So he summoned him back in and said, oh, wicked servant, I forgave you of all this debt, and you go out and do this? They said, take him and torture him until he pay everything that he owes. Now, What's interesting about the story is that when you go back and look at the value of stuff at the time of Jesus, a talent, and when you put the 10,000 talents together, it takes about, based on the time and money at that time, it would have taken him 160,000 years to work off that debt. I hope y'all heard what I just said. 160 thousand years he would have had to work to pay off that debt. Impossible. Nobody lives that long. Nobody lives 100 years most of the time. 160,000? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not even possible. But what is he doing? Let me, uh, please don't do this to me. Let me pay you back. I promise I'll pay you back. This is how we sound to God when we're begging him or we're telling him what we're going to do with something or we promise this and all that. You, most of the stuff's impossible to do. It's just let it go. You know, there's no way you can ever repay God for the forgiveness he's going to extend to you for your life. 
You just can't. I mean, but a lot of people, we have some stuff that looks heavier than others, and we, we carry it when they, 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 look, they don't have what it takes <laughs> to get to God. They just don't. They think they do, and that's what's more scary. You know, but 160000 And the guy who he went to, he could have paid him off in six months. The money he owed, if he had let him go out and work, he could have paid him back in six months. It was possible to be paid back. Now, what did that mean? Jesus was trying to get Peter to understand, when you ask me the question, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? You don't understand already how much God has forgiven you for the sins that you have committed and just by virtue of being born. Because once we're born, the Bible says we're born sinners. We're born in sin. And, and, and you can watch little babies. They start almost immediately. Once they understand how to manipulate you, you know, if they got to cry to get what they want, they know they ain't hungry. But, <laughs> or they know you want to put them down. So you put them down and there they go. You're going to pick me up. And they start doing things, you know, and they, 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 they come up with their own ways. And eventually, they're going to tell you. I'm talking to little Khalil. We went over the other day, and he done learned how to say shut up. And he don't want to tell Sister Lori because I can't say that. She ain't stopped talking, but he looked at her. She was talking about something. He goes, shut up, shut up. And her mom was like, stop that, boy. Shut up. Shut up. She's like, that's my problem. I, he got that from me. I said, I ain't going to ask you who you've been saying that to, but, you know, they learned. So he was, he was adamant. He knew what it meant, too. And he was trying to get it done. So, you know, we, we come out like this. I mean, you know, we're, the Bible says we're crafted in rebellion. We, you know, so God's like, look, I just want all y'all to understand. If you understand that, then you're not counting up how many times do I have to forgive this one or that one because I understand, really, you know what? God has forgiven me of so much stuff. Let me just learn how to just let it go and forgive other people and just be through with it. That's, that's, that's what we are about to understand about the, what he heard, what they were taught, what they saw, because this is the reality of life. It's not getting into Brahman and any of these other things and getting in sync with yourself and getting into meditative state and, you know, all these crystals and other uh, ancestral spirits that can help us find God and all these different things. No, 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 no. People say, well, if God loved the world, why is it in such messed up state? And you say, okay, obviously you don't understand the story. You don't know the Bible. God created the world perfectly, we were told. God then, they sinned, and sin came into the world, and man died. He told Adam, the day you eat that, you will die. So he died, and all men have died since, and all kind of heck is on the planet. Then the Bible says, God so loved the world. He's looking down. God loves us. God wants the world saved. He gave the only thing he had that would satisfy his judgment. He sent his son into the world. So his son came into the world and began to show us God. This is God. If you, if, if you want to see God as a man, this is God. Jesus then told his disciples, he said, go, and I want you, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans yet, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to God's people and declare to them the kingdom of God is here. Now, begin to show them the kingdom. 
and everywhere Jesus went, there was nothing you had that didn't get healed. Nothing. Blind people, leprous people, people with palsy, people with limbs that were retracted and shriveled up. All kind of things were happening miraculously. Jesus was controlling the wind and the waves. All kind of things, walking on water. The kingdom of God is here. The king has arrived. This is what the planet is going to be like when I rule. Now accept me to the Jewish people. You're the people of God. Accept me. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. In fact, they rejected him and turned him over to the Gentiles where he was crucified. But the Bible says this was all in God's plan from the beginning because Jesus said, this is not the only sheep I have. I have another fold that I have to bring to the Father. He was talking about us because we're not Jews, irrespective of what some people want to say about this, but, you know, we are not. So there may be some uh, Ethiopian Jews, but, you know, for the most part, most of us are not Jews. But we are now the people of God. The Bible says, I was found by them that sought me not. We weren't even looking for God. And God came to us and delivered Christ. So when people say, well, if God cared about the world, why is it so messed up? Man, you don't understand what you're talking about. God cares so much about the world, he sent the only son he had. That son came, demonstrated what God would be like to us, healing our afflictions, raising people from the dead. Jesus literally went into funerals, and, and funeral processions were coming, people crying and stuff. Jesus would stop, touch the body, and bam, the person was rise from the dead. I mean, can you imagine that in this time? But the Bible says that what? When Christ comes, there'll be no more death. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more uh, 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 need for healing or any of this stuff because what? Everyone will walk in the perfectness of God, those who have come to him. But those who have not will end up being banished to punishment. So John says in verse 4, he says, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. In other words, he wants us to be able to be here, not pursuing just being happy. The idea is that there are going to be some things that are going to happen here that we don't understand, and we're not going to be so happy about it. But joy is this consistent understanding that God is always with us in every situation we're going through, that God is always present, God is always there, and God cares. And so we have this joy, something that we can't understand why we have peace, why we're where we are, but we know. So when we set happiness as our goal, the problem with that is happiness is always based on circumstances. And circumstances change a lot. Um, and unfortunately, when they change, sometimes they don't change in the way that we would like them to, and, and they lead to sadness. Uh, but at the same time, the concept of joy is, is different. So he says that your joy may be full. So in verse 5, he says, this then is the message. All right, so here we go. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and we declare it unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So when people begin to say that God does evil things, and God did this, and God did that, he says, nope. I'm trying to make it clear to you, God is light, and in God is no darkness at all. So no matter what we see, what's happening, Jesus said, 
I've come to destroy the works of the devil. The bottom line is that when death occurs, and it doesn't matter at whatever age it happens, I don't know anyone yet unless they're just not related to you or they just don't like you, who if they are related to you are not sad. My dad lived to be 86, still was sad, you know. Um, my grandmother lived to be 90-something. It was still sad because you don't want to see them go. You, know, you would like to be with people forever, but it's not what happens, right? And because of that, we sometimes have this time where if we're not careful, it seems like God, it's God's fault or something and things. And people in the world, they do that and they blame God and, and they, they walk away from God and they don't want to have anything to do with God and they're saying all kinds of things. And the reality is, John says, don't do that. Jesus tried to get us to understand this is the message we got from the Son. There's no darkness in God. All, God is all light. There's no darkness in him at all. And then the next verse says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. So in other words, he says, look, don't go around deceiving yourself. Now, nah, I mean, if you say you have God, then you can't walk in darkness and be in fellowship with God if there's no darkness in him. Now, that doesn't mean, and we'll see it in a minute, that we, can't, we don't have sins that happen. The Bible talks about, though, the lifestyle of practicing sin that the way we were before we knew God, where we didn't care about certain things. We could do anything, watch anything, go anywhere, do anything, and it didn't matter. It just didn't phase us like that. Whereas once we come to God and we know God, because there's no darkness in God, we can't fellowship with God. You know, we, we, we try, but we know that we've missed it, and this is why it troubles us. This is why some people cry. This is why it bothers some people when they fall into a sin or something happens, and they're concerned about it, and they want God to forgive them, and they're concerned about it. And the devil, if you're not careful, can use this condemnation even for a very long time in people's lives. They're sensitive to what they've done. They're sensitive to the problems and the sins in their life or whatever they've committed, and the devil is always circling back around some kind of way to try and be the accuser of the brethren, you know, and, and trying to constantly make you relive what you did wrong. And if you've truly repented of what you did wrong, then you have to cast your care on the Lord and believe what John's saying, and you'll see this in a moment. But his point is to the people who believe they can walk in darkness and have fellowship with God. And he says if you're doing that, I mean, he's just, I mean, he's just point blank. My mama used to say, don't, don't use that word. Don't call nobody no lie, uh, a liar. But there it is right there. At least John talking to us anyway. Maybe we shouldn't do it. We probably shouldn't do it. But I tell you what, John said, don't lie. All right, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness, we lie. Now, <laughs> let me clarify this. So my mama used to say this too now. I think that, she probably was right. My grandmother used to say it too. Because, I mean, who am I to take, call you a lie? I'm lying probably too. You know, I mean, we all, <laughs> we all got some lies. So I, I think it's like judging people when they say that. You a liar. And it's like, ooh. Because a liar is like a kind of person. Yeah, it's not just you told a lie. A liar is like, you lie. That's what you do, you know. That's your nature. The Bible says Jesus said the devil is a liar. 
Okay, so that's his character, you know. So I think that here we see uh, being told if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't do the truth. So we don't want to be people that are fellowshipping in darkness, believing that we can. And then he says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we say then that if we pursue light and walk in light, then the blood of Jesus is constantly cleansing our life, constantly cleansing us of our sin, constantly helping us as we see the light. The Bible says that the word is the light of God. It's a light unto my path. It is the light that we walk by. If we use the word as we walk in light, this is why there are things that the Bible says we shouldn't do. So when we read it, we know we shouldn't do it. Now, if you did it, you know you shouldn't have done it. You ask God to forgive you. The reason you're doing that is because you see it in the word. You know. Now, there's a distinction, and I don't know where the line is. I have to believe, because the Bible tells us in, when we talk about communion, that God can chasten us based on things that are going on in our lives. You know, and there could be weakness and sickness and early death. We see all this. But we also see that God tells us to judge ourselves. That's what we should do. Judge yourself. Chasten yourself. So the light of the word, which we see through Christ, is teaching us those things that are important to God, those things that matter to God, and those things that we ought to be doing if we say we have God. And if we walk in those things, we can be assured that Jesus' blood is cleansing us from all unrighteousness and all sin. Now then in verse 8 he says this, and you hear this in the world all the time. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He says, so people need to understand. All that talk out there about people got issues, and people have different ways of doing things, and uh, what God says is sin is sin. If God says it's evil, it's evil. If God says you shouldn't do it, we ain't supposed to do it. If God says it's sin... It ain't an issue. It's a sin. And we need to understand it that way. God didn't say confess your issues. God said confess your sin. And we need to understand it as that. But what ends up happening many times is because we're so busy trying to make people feel okay. I mean, and that's all right, but, I mean, think about this. And I've said this before at times. You know, if we were in here and the, the, the building was burning down, now, now would we expect the five men to come in and say, y'all just be all right. Y'all got a few issues going on right now. But let's sit here and let's just, it's going to be all right. No, they're going to be screaming and trying to get us out the building. Screaming fire, you're going to die in here. You know, if we just say, look, hey, we good. We're trying to finish Bible study. Y'all do that later. Y'all need to get out the building. That's what he's going to be saying. Well, this is kind of what all of the gospel is about. The world's on fire. Things on fire. We're not going to get out alive. And Jesus said what we really ought to fear is, not only dying here, but then afterwards having to deal with God where we get an eternity where we don't get to live. So he says, whenever you're talking to people who say men don't have sin, and that, that's no such thing, that's a, that's a religious concept, and you need to embrace yourself. I mean, you can read some people now, some of the magazines where they're saying, you know, I read even in one place that they were talking about like a psychopath, a person who has psychopathic tendencies needs to be understood and embraced. And I'm like, that's where we're going now? 
I mean, you know, so we're now going to call prostitutes sex workers. We're going to call psychopaths. People just need to be understood and embraced. And, and all of the stuff that we understood was not good and was evil. Things we were doing, we're now saying is not sin. And God says, if we, don't, if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. And then he goes on, he says, verse 9, here's the answer. If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful. And he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he, he, he tells us in verse 9, if we confess our sins, we have now assurance from God that I'm not here to beat you up. God's like, look, I, that's not my plan. My plan was not to come down, tell y'all all what's wrong with y'all, and then condemn you. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the, the world, but to save it. He said in one place, the people that are sick need the physician, not the people that are well. So if people think they're righteous and they have it all together, Jesus is like, look, obviously I'm not here for you. But the people who know their lives are broken, they know that they've missed God. They know that they've committed sin. They know that they need God. He says, if you'll confess that sin, and instead of coming trying to make it okay, well, look, you know, I know I haven't lived right, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God all the good things I did and, and all that, and somehow that's going to work. God's like, nope, you got to confess your sin. When you do that, then God will do what? The Bible says he's just and he's faithful. Now, many times people will say, well, how do you know this is true? Because he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, all we can say to that is this. When you look at the historical context of all these different people, all these books keep being found and discovered in places that, you know, um, they couldn't have been written recently. They're written by many multitudes and different people. When you go back to the prophets, Isaiah and Daniel and all that, you see the correlations through all the books. And then finally, you have to rest on this. You have to ask yourself this question. And this is what I say to people who now are Christians, because many times if you say this to believers, unbelievers, they may understand what you're saying and be able to rationalize it a little bit. But definitely to the believer, when they say, well, how can I be sure, Pastor? I say, well, think about this. If you wanted to know a God based on what you think you know, and if you thought that God was holy and righteous and perfect, and he had a heaven like that, and the only thing in it was righteous, perfect, and holy, and just, and good. Do you think on your own you can get in? If your answer is yes, then he says, okay, you're deceived anyway. Most people who are Christians and have placed their confidence in Christ and start to wonder would normally say, not so much. I don't, I don't think I would want to face God by myself and say, well, God, I weigh me in the balance. Take everything I've done wrong and everything I've done right, and you decide, should I come to heaven? I just, I, maybe you're feeling good. I personally would not want to take that. I would rather 
believe that there's enough history of a historical Jesus who came that God would be, it seemed to me, if he loved me like the Bible says he does and he has compassion on me and he's pitiful toward me, that he would look at me and say, I got to figure out a way to get white in here because he done messed it up so bad. There ain't no way he can stand on his own. But I really like him. I love him. I want him here. I got to save him. And so he sends his only son, who's perfect, righteous, holy. And then I watch his life, and then they, he dies on a cross when all he had to do he could have hid himself. He could have run. He could have done all that. Why, why would you just go to the cross? The Bible, everything that's recorded about him, not just here but in historical things with the Jews, say that this one that they don't confess to be Christ was crucified, that he went to this cross, that all this stuff happened. He never cries out. He's never saying, you know, why would he do that? Because this is true, and God needed a perfect sacrifice, and it makes so much sense to me, God, I'm just, I throw myself on Jesus. I, 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 that's all I got. I'm not going to go up there thinking I could think my way through, I could pray my way through, I could do anything else. I refuse to accept anything other than the garment and the blood of Jesus, and that's what I'm going to bank my life on. And I, I just don't see anything in any other religion that I'm comfortable that I would want to do that. I'm just going to hold on to Jesus, his blood, and I'm taking it in, and that's how I'm going because the Bible says, if I say I don't have sin, I make him a liar. And I sure don't want to do that. And the Bible says if I confess my sins, he's faithful and he's just. Imagine, with every other way, and I'm going to close since 8 o'clock, but think about it, with every other way that's out there. Think about this. If there was a God, and he was just, and he was righteous, and he was all of that, and you get there, and he says, why do you think I should let you in? And you got your head down, and you say, the only reason I think I should get in here is because of Jesus. You know the one that died on the cross. You know the one that they beat and crucified. While everybody else has got their head up talking about whatever their religion is, and you got yours down, and you're saying, because of Jesus, not me, his blood. God's going to look at you and say, well, no, you can't come in. But then he's going to look at somebody else practicing something else and say, oh, yeah, you prayed enough. Oh, yeah, you did whatever. I'm taking my chance with Jesus. I mean, that's what I would do. I, mean, I think any sane person would. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you tonight for the power of your spirit and for the anointing of your spirit. We pray tonight in the name of Jesus and through your precious blood, we ask that you would surround us and our families with your loving kindness, which is better than life. Again, Father, we extend our love and our concern and our prayers for Sister Corrine and her family and all of them, that, Father, you would... Bless them in this time of trouble. Help them, Father God, to be able to stand by you. But also, Father, help us to stand by them as the family of God. Father, we pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.